Marxism is a word that exists among a cluster of other words that are generally understood to be left and anti-capitalist, but whose definitions beyond that are generally vague or misunderstood. So we thought that with all the work we're covering and that we have covered and intend to cover in the future, uh, that basically consists of people claiming to be actual Marxists where other people are fake Marxists, we should probably discuss what Marxism actually is. Our principal sources for the day are going to be The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and Principles of Communism by Friedrich Engels. And uh, we're going to build an understanding of the basic tenets of Marxism, discuss how it differs from other forms of socialism. And then in a follow-up episode, we are going to go step-by-step on a walk through Marx's critique of the Gothic program. This is We Read Theory. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. I'm Alex. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about Karl Marx, as we said before. Um, I'm excited. I don't know about you. Yeah. Have you? Do, would you consider yourself as someone who has like a strong understanding of what Marxism is? Like, if you had to define Marxism to not like, not like. Uh, someone outside of the left, but someone that's like kind of a budding leftist and who is curious about the different ideas. Do you think that you could give a strong definition of what Marxism is? Yeah, sure. I feel like I could totally, um, I could, I could tell someone who is maybe, um, uh, what's the word, um, disaffected by the current state of the DNC, definitely what a Marxist is and how it can be um, not, not implemented, but how it would fit into our current framework. Um, I could definitely tell, like, um, <laughs> certain, uh, conservative members of my family, although they wouldn't listen to me past, like, the first couple words, but, you know, that's just how things are. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those buzzwords that gets people to, uh, turn their brains off. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I kind of, I kind of feel like today, um, as many definitions as possible, as we can get done, the better. I really want this to be, you know, as informative. So much of under, yeah, so much of understanding leftism is just vocabulary more than anything else. Oh my God, I know. I feel like when you're conservative, all you got to do is listen to some Ben Shapiro and Stephen Crowder, and then just recycle their talking points and take a Prager U test, and you're certified neocon. Yeah, lefties actually have to read theory, but let's get into that. Yeah, I have a I have a lovely script on Marxism for us, so let's just get right into it. So one of the things that makes Marxism so difficult to pin down is that it contains so many different ideas under one name. Marxism is, on the one hand, a lens for analyzing history and present society, and on the other hand, a set of political prescriptions with the goal of ending the exploitation of the working class. We're going to start with the analytical side of things, and the first term you need to know is historical materialism. This is basically the idea that the development of human society is motivated by material conditions rather than ideology or religion or whatever. It follows, then, that major changes in the organization of society result from major changes to that society's material conditions, and these changes constitute the ends and the beginnings of stages of societal development. These different stages are defined by their mode of production, or the way in which the social structure organizes its resources, tools, and labor 
to produce the things the people who live in the society need to survive. Long ago, we had societies built on slave labor, which gave way to feudalism and serfdom, which in turn gave way to capitalism and wage labor. If this sounds simplistic, it's because I'm simplifying it. Marx is clear that this is a measure of trends, not absolutes, and that different localities develop differently. This lineage refers generally to trends in European development, but not universally. The modes of production we just listed all differ pretty significantly from one another, but they also share some essential qualities. Principally, all historical modes of production are built on class conflict. Now, class is a group of people united by a common relationship to the means of production. In simplest terms, there are working classes who subsist by combining their labor with the means of production to make goods, and there are owning classes who subsist without laboring because their ownership of those tools and resources, the means of production, entitles them to a portion of the value that laborers create. While the nuances of this relationship can differ quite drastically through time and space, it's always fundamentally exploitative. Thus, the history of human civilization is the history of classes of people who work, being exploited by classes of who don't, and major shifts in the organization of human society result from changes in material conditions which motivate and empower a class other than the ruling class to become a revolutionary class and supplant it and remake society in its own image. The supplanting of the landed aristocracy by the bourgeoisie over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries has led to the supplanting of aristocratic feudal society with bourgeois capitalist society. Historically, the revolutionary class has not been the bulk of the working class, but rather a moderately well-off minority whose positions allow them to amass wealth and power within the existing social structures. So, are we just doomed to an unending cycle of history where cool old masters are periodically replaced with cruel new masters, and the material conditions of the working classes change but never significantly improve? No. Marx and Engels posit that the era in which we live represents a unique opportunity for the working classes to throw off the yoke of exploitation once and for all. What makes this era different from all those that came before? The first difference is that our material wealth has expanded to the point where it's possible to provide for the subsistence of all people with enough left over to reinvest and expand our productive capabilities. The second difference is the rise of the proletariat. The proletariat is the class of urban industrial wage workers. They are defined by zero ownership of capital, and they work for wages that trend towards bare subsistence. Basically, um, in a competitive market system, your wages are always going to trend, given no other outside factors, towards the least amount that your boss can pay you without you either, you know, dying, not being able to work, or or maybe going over to someone else. But it's always going to be the least amount they possibly can get away with paying you. Right. The least amount that they're required by law to give you. If the law if the law if such a law exists, yes. I mean, and even what they are giving you also supplements their own class because how much of your paycheck goes towards rent? I mean, I can think of my my I'm allowed to live comfortably, but there are plenty of people in the United States where like 50% of their earnings go to rent, which is just another arm of that class. Yeah, that's one of the places where, where Marx gets his uh, angriest in his writing. You can kind of feel uh, the emotion come through is when he talks about, you know, how little the workers are paid. And then once they leave, 
their money is instantly set upon by other members of the bourgeoisie, the the landlords, and the, just the people who run businesses that they need to patronize for their own survival. Exactly, yeah. and like the I, I saw the um the twelve hundred dollar uh, stimulus check that um people are supposed to get. Um, debt collectors can now take that directly, so people never even see that. <laughs> Which is also super fucked. Yeah, it's it's ghoulish but totally expected, and um, it's probably not going to get um, the reaction it deserves. Yeah, like most things. I'm uh, sorry. Continue. Well, okay. So let's 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 talk a little bit more about the proletariat and what makes them so special. For Marx, the proletariat represents the only true, potentially revolutionary class of our current era. Capitalist production is all about concentration. Large amounts of urban workers concentrate in areas with large amounts of capital. For this reason, a proletariat that becomes conscious of how class divisions drive their material oppression would be entirely capable of seizing the privately owned means of production and putting them to use for the benefit of all of society, if it so chose. The third difference is found in the internal contradictions of capitalism, and there are a lot of them. But we're going to focus on just one example, just to you know, go over the, the concept of internal contradictions. So, as technology advances, labor is made easier and more efficient, and production costs go down. In a competitive economy, a reduction in production costs generally results in a reduction of the price of the final goods. So, assuming that labor costs stay the same, innovation often causes capitalist enterprises to become less profitable. The loss of profit is made up for by driving down wages or eliminating portions of the workforce entirely. This is what people are basically being threatened with when people say, you know, you don't accept $7 an hour, we'll replace you with a, ro with a robot who only costs three. Um, and this is basically what they're talking about, because in order to stay profitable as technology advances, you, you have to significantly reduce your labor costs. As time goes on, the work of the proletariat becomes more menial as they are also paid a lower wage or lose their jobs entirely. And the constant degradation of the proletarian's material conditions, according to Marx, make the widespread development of class consciousness across the whole pro proletariat inevitable. In simplified terms, the analytical conclusions of Marxism are that capitalism is a distinct stage of human social development and is destined to fall eventually due to its internal contradictions and that the next stage in development will be one in which the proletariat becomes the ruling class. What you just heard for the last 10 minutes or so is the theoretical work that brings us to that conclusion. And, you know, the society in which the proletariat constitutes the ruling class is what Marx is talking about when he talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is not a literal dictatorship in the sense that we think of today, where we think of one guy is in charge, or even like that rule that uh, reign of terror era um, committee of public safety where it's like, where it's like a revolutionary committee. By the same logic that Marx defines the dictatorship of the proletariat, the liberal democracies many of us, including me and Alex, live in today would be defined as a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, as our democratic institutions are structurally geared towards fulfilling that ruling class interests, even if we all technically get a vote. By all accounts, the dictatorship of the proletariat should be significantly more democratic than our present institutions because it would exist to serve the needs of a ruling class that represents the vast majority rather than a minority of its constituents. So what would you say really quick as an example of um, making something 
that like our current current structure today more democratic? So a lot of so well, first of all, the the electoral college is a um is a kind of part of how America does its elections. That's completely undemocratic, and it the way in which it works, it can't help but structurally defend property and defend uh, the ruling class because of course uh, that's what conservatism is for and it it invariably increases the weight of conservative votes in reaction to um, liberal or or left votes um, another example is just the way in which it, it would be like citizens united where we know that the spending of money is incredibly influential when it comes to uh, a campaign success or failure. So the fact that we are so willing to let how much money is spent on a campaign be dictated by a relatively small number of people um, is a fundamentally anti-democratic way to run an election. And so the idea of the dictatorship, the idea is that the reason these things are allowed to happen is because the government is structured to ultimately defend the 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 interest in the property of the current ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, the landowning class, and were the proletariat to gain class consciousness and take control. The way in which the government is structured, a the way in which the government is structured would would assuming that they act in their own self interest would not allow a class different from them to assert its power over them. And also, um, ideally, the accumulation of wealth in general should be harder. And and so even if the same rules were in place, which they shouldn't be, certainly by Marxist standards, but even if they were, just that lesser accumulation of wealth would also make it harder to exercise that influence, even if the opportunity was there. So that's kind of twofold. Hmm. So Marx would look down on things like inheritance. Oh, oh, yeah. He actually uh, specifically outlines towards the end of chapter three of the Communist Manifesto, he outlines a bunch of policies that he actually wants to see um, being done, and the complete uh, just abolition of inheritance is 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 uh, pretty high up on that list. All right, cool. Let, let's get back into the the actual episode. Okay, so well, that what you just heard is Marxism in the context of historical development. If we want to get into political prescriptions, then we kind of have to go over something called the labor theory of value. Really quickly, the labor theory of value posits that if you take a naturally occurring resource like wood in the form of a tree that's worth a value X, and you cut it down and fashion it into a table and chairs, and as a result, that wood is now valued something higher than X, it's the labor you performed that created that additional value. That's what the labor theory of value says. What it doesn't say is that all forms of labor are equally valuable. A novice craftsman does not impart four times as much value into that wood just for taking four times as long as a master to do it. If we accept this theory, the labor theory of value, we must come to one of two conclusions. We observe that Jeff Bezos' wealth, for example, grows by a few hundred thousand times the rate of his average employee. So we must either conclude that Mr. Bezos' labor is genuinely worth hundreds of thousands of times what his average employee's labor is, or that he's compensated for something other than labor. Now, obviously, the second is true. Jeff Bezos' wealth increases principally because he owns the largest chunk of Amazon and is therefore entitled to the value the company accrues. And here's the thing. If value can only be created through labor, 
that an increase in the value of Amazon can only have come from the labor of Amazon employees. What this means is that the lion's share of Jeff Bezos' net worth is value created by his employees rather than his own personal labor. Marxists consider this method of wealth accumulation to be a form of extortion. Every billion dollars accrued in an owner's stock portfolio is a billion stolen from the workers who created it. A critic of Marxism might argue that this state of affairs is justified because all exchanges are voluntary. No one is holding a gun to the workers' heads and forcing them to work for a wage that represents only a portion of what they actually produce. But here's the problem with that. We are born with a gun to our heads. If we don't perform useful labor, we can't eat, we can't drink, we can't protect ourselves from the elements, and it's only by combining labor with means of production that it becomes useful, and someone else already owns all the means. Fundamentally, your choice is take a raw deal or die. And no one ever asked if I thought that was okay. No one ever asked you either. That's that's also so true. And the argument that um that all all this all of this is voluntary is like you don't you don't have to do anything, you can die instead makes the people who are in these really shitty situations working for minimum wage, barely making rent, really mad at the people who may not be able to work and completely misdirects their anger and yeah. fuels the interest of owners. Yeah, the 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 beauty of of the way the bourgeois acts as a ruling class is is how the way they antagonize the the working class is just as liable to turn them against each other as it is um and and generally even more 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 liable to do so than it is to turn them against the people who are actually causing them harm in the first place. Yeah, I think the greatest trick that conservatism and I guess um neoliberalism ever pulled was convincing um rural Americans that they had more in common with billionaires than people who live in the inner city or convincing white suburbanites that I don't know, making peace with everything was more important than helping out both of those people, both of those parties. Yeah, that kind of goes back to um, what we talked about in our episode on Martin Luther King and the letter from Birmingham jail and 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 the the preference of, of many people of, of like the moderate in general um, of a negative piece that is the absence of tension to a positive piece that is the presence of justice. Um, that was well put. I like that. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank, thank Dr. King for that one. And, um, yeah, it, it's like, if you're going to use, um, the argument that it's okay because it's voluntary, it's like, I don't know, look around. If this is what voluntary looks like, then what good is voluntarism? Like, of course, I believe in like voluntary association, but if this is the only way it can possibly exist, if this is what that word has to mean, then I'm not in favor of it at all. Yeah, that's also kind of funny because um, I think one of the core tenets of Marxism, which which people people say it's it's voluntary to work, but in a fully communist system, um, equal liability of all to work is one of the core tenets, which I think is misunderstood because there's an equal liability to work in capitalism as well. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's some... I mean, and, and we could talk all day about different ways of organizing a socialist system or a communist system. Um, 
and and to what degree you could compel people to work and to what degree you would just have to trust them to do it depending on what you decide to do. But the idea that there is no compulsion to work under a capitalist system is frankly absurd. And I mean, no one uh, no one actually believes that outside of the five seconds that they drop it in an argument. Right. Yeah. So, given all that we just said, it's no surprise that the single most important prescription made by Marx is the total abolition of private ownership of the means of production. The ultimate goal of Marxism is to establish a stateless, classless society based on the principle from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But, as we saw in our reading of Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution, there must be some form of transitory period in which the proletariat forms a new state apparatus that elevates the proletariat to the position of ruling class, the dictatorship of the proletariat. At this point, the state can be entrusted with responsibilities like land expropriation and the canceling of rents, the implementation of steep progressive taxes, or the centralization of infrastructure for communications, transport, the giving of credit. This basic framework forms what is called the first or lower phase of communism. The long-term goals of the lower stage are the maintenance of the proletariat's ruling class status and the gradual abolition of private property and wage labor. Since the bourgeoisie is defined by private ownership of the means of production, it must necessarily disappear as private property disappears. This makes the dictatorship of the proletariat fundamentally different from other types of state power, where historically states have facilitated and moderated class conflict. This one seeks to resolve and end it entirely. By successfully accomplishing this goal, the dictatorship of the proletariat would abolish its own need to exist and, as Lenin argued, gradually wither away the whole state apparatus entirely. The result of the abolition of class differences and the withering away of the state is, of course, a society without class or a state. This is, as we stated earlier, the ultimate goal of Marxism and the higher phase of communism. And that's pretty much everything I had scripted. Um, I mean, you could, you could, and people have talked endlessly about what it means to be a Marxist and like, uh, but I think it's important to understand what Marx is all about. Um, because you begin to understand why, I don't know, you, you begin to understand the significance that Marx has played because what he does that's so special is that scientification and that use of like hard data, which is what he did when he wrote Das Kapital and, 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 and that, and that very clear and transparent reasoning pointing out logical contradictions in the way that capitalism functions. What this did was so invaluable for left-wing politics, it's really hard to overstate. Um, and that's where you get the term scientific socialism. And it's also, um, he's, he's one of the people that we consider to be the, the, the founder of the modern understanding, the modern field of sociology, which is just the application of scientific principles to studying the way that people act and interact with each other politically and socially. So within Marx's framework, this has probably stemmed into a bunch of other ideologies. Um, what would the most popular be, at least in regards to um, pundits today? So, so we have our own words for things. 
this is a Marx episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about what Marx had to say about the different kinds of socialists and whether they should be trusted, whether you should work with them. Um, because Marxism did represent something that was in many ways more radical and more revolutionary than what other socialists at the time were um, proposing. So there's four different kinds of socialists other than Marxists that Marx outlines in the Communist Manifesto itself and basically gives a little guide for what they're all about and what we should do to deal with them. So the first is the reactionary socialists. These have kind of... My interpretation of what he wrote here is that these are the people that have kind of come to be like Strasserites and like Nazbols, the people who latch on to... Just really quick. Um, yeah. For any listeners who don't know, what the fuck is a Nazbol? So a Nazbol is basically someone who has who is a, a fascist or like a Nazi when it comes to social and like race theory and like gendered politics and stuff. But um, they are also like an economic leftist, at least in some sense. So it's like, so it's like this, I always consider like Nazbol arguments to be ones that kind of like appropriate leftist goal, like leftist rhetoric to accomplish right-wing goals. So like the idea that like using the driving down of wages um, as an argument for closing the borders um, would be like kind of a that would be kind of like a reactionary socialist argument. Also, like every time Tucker Carlson uh, criticizes the Democrats for like making everything about race and gender when like actually class is the real divide and the real issue. And it's like, first of all, I, I believe intersectionality is really important, but like, but like Tucker Carlson is is playing that class card there. Not to make life better for the working class, but to get them to be racist and sexist. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like what we, and, 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 in Marxist time, obviously we didn't have fascists really. Um, so, so these people kind of become like feudal socialists where they, where it's more like, oh, like workers were better off before capitalism. We were better off in the communes, uh, that we were like farming in. And so it's this desire to like go back to feudalism. But uh, Marx is not for this because, A, he believes that history is a forward-marching progression of events. Um, you can't, like, go back um, and, and that, you know, our current situation is the result of our material conditions. But also that feudalism, like, wasn't good and capitalism is a lot better in a lot of ways. It actually creates the environment where we can ultimately end the exploitation of the working class and so to go back in time somewhere where we're farther away from accomplishing that goal would be very counterproductive from a marxist from a marxist framework and then of course you have your conservative or bourgeois socialists uh these are basically just reformists so we talked about like edward bernstein uh in our next episode we're going to talk about the um ideas of a guy named frederick Lassalle, who is who is um he founded the the German Socialist Party that was called ADAV, uh, that was like kind of a, you know, they were still pretty revolutionary, but they were more, um, more on the reformist side than like the Marxists, um, of the time. And so they kind of use socialist rhetoric and critique of capitalism to justify reforms, which marginally improve the conditions of the working class, but don't change the fundamental relations. And so this, this like really reminds me of like Andrew Yang's, uh, UBI which is a kind of like a socialist adjacent idea, policy idea, 
but the way in which it's implemented, it's implemented to ultimately protect capital. Mm-hmm. But it's meant to protect it from revolution as opposed to from people, you know, getting slightly higher wages. Yeah. Pretty sure I've already said it before, but it's pitchfork insurance. Yes, exactly. Um, there's critical utopian socialism and communism. So this kind of refers largely to a lot of the people that came before Marx that were espousing socialism. And, and, and like I said before, what Marx gave to socialism is so, so valuable, that scientification. Before Marx, they were doing basically the same thing that every other political movement in history had ever done, where just a bunch of people would like lock themselves in a room and like think real hard and like try to come up with something instead of like looking at the world. <laughs> and, and so these are like kind of like, this is how you get the like utopian socialism of some of like someone like Proudhon. The major failings of this way of thinking uh, for Marx is that um, it's not based on the elevation of the working class to the state of ruling class, but rather like this kind of ephemeral like abolition of class that comes once and for all. It's kind of it reads to me through Marx's words to be kind of similar to like the anarchism of someone like a Kropotkin or a Bakunin. Um, and it's not based on historical materialism, so um, it can often take a reactionary character because um, if you're not basing your socialism on historical materialism, then you're always leaving that door open for people to say, maybe we should move back in time um, because capitalism is so bad for the workers. And at the time, God, it really, really was even so much worse than today. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, the last group that he talks about are is the democratic socialists. These are sort of at least, you know. Once again, this is all through Marx's lens and Marx's framework. Um, these are these to me seem to be the people that um, are interested in establishing that first phase of communism, and that's kind of like their goal. So they don't want to totally destroy the existence of the state or of or like entirely or of like wealth inequality entirely. Like they're generally okay with. Um, a society that is that is still kind of like has a state structure and isn't based entirely on like from each according to his ability to each according to his need. There's still a sense of like you get out what you put in. Um, and so democratic socialists tend to be kind of OK with this sort of society. And Karl Marx is basically says um, work with them until you can. If you're if you're like a Marxist whose ultimate goal is that higher phase of communism, then then he says Work with the democratic socialists until you can. So they're like more like armchair socialists. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think I think democratic socialism is a perfectly defensible um, position. Oh no, at least like, in terms of what Marx thinks about them. I just wanted. To... I, I don't know if I'd say that he thinks that they're armchair socialists. I just think that he would probably say that they are not quite. I think that he's like generally like pretty like likes these people just fine. He just thinks that they're ultimately not ambitious enough and if they get what they want like things will get better but they're not gonna like they'll be treating the illness instead of totally fixing it because ultimately it's that that like complete decommodification of all the things we need to survive is like the ultimate goal and so there would still be this presence of the commodity form in a democratic socialist system even if like the even if like private ownership of the means of production is in some way or another, technically abolished. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's how a lot of people are feeling about, at least, at least right now. Um, I mean, democratic socialism is is in right now, absolutely. Yeah, that people are feeling 
um, just not represented by the DNC anymore. At least about four people on Twitter are. That's that's where I get most of my social interaction nowadays, unfortunately. I well, I, I'm I'm actually curious. What's your opinion on on the ultimate abolition of class and the state? Because that's something that I'm pretty skeptical about. Um, I I'm a strong believer in anything is possible, but I'm not a strong believer in anything is something that we could, I, I don't know. I guess it's, I kind of see the total abolition of like the commodity form and of like class and the state as something that we aim to approach asymptotically, but like, like you're in a sailboat, we, you're tacking towards it, not a powerboat speeding towards it. You just, you just swing yeah, towards yeah. it in the general it's, direction, you know? Not to get Jewish up in here, but it, it comes from, but like, it reminds me of, um, like a phrase amongst like Talmud scholars where, uh, where like they're told, you know, you're not expected to finish the work, but you're also not permitted to stop. Hmm. And so I think that kind of makes me a democratic socialist, which is okay with me. Yeah. It's um, not, it's not the worst. And I like democracy a lot. And I, I do get a little bit skeptical about like, the hyper local government of like commune systems, like, like, like what, um, Kropotkin was, was talking about in, in our first episode, because I don't believe that all forms of oppression arise solely from class-based oppression. I do believe that there's other stuff going on. And so I think that if you leave it up to like a local commune, there's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff going on and you're not going to have any apparatus to deal with. And so, and you know, yeah, that's just my little bit of like skepticism about that. But I do think it's a general good goal to attempt to approach, regardless. Right. Yeah. I, the fully automated luxury gay space communism, unfortunately, is never going to happen. But I, I don't know. I'm definitely not an anarchist by by in in any sense of the word. Well, I, actually, maybe this would be a good opportunity to really hash out the the, the distinctions between anarchism and communism. Because um, ultimately, like they're 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 going for the same thing, right? But um, it's more like commun- communism is really about like that transitory stage, whereas anarchism is like, no, we just got to go straight from one to the other. Yeah, wait, didn't didn't um, I could be wrong. Didn't Kropotkin say there should be a dictatorship of the proletariat, but just for seemed like a shorter amount of the t- total time? No, he said the opposite. He said he said, listen. We we can't afford to make any delays. Uh, once once you've got the revolution going, you gotta expropriate the food and distribute it. No, you know, yeah, but who's gonna distribute the food? Well, yeah, you have like the in in reality, there's some sort of centralized power. Have some kind of have some kind of like central uh, centralized and like hierarchical um, way of doing it. I actually don't think. That that's like particularly hypocritical, and it obviously it's something that you have to do if you're like doing this. A revolution is kind of an inherently authoritarian thing to do, um, which doesn't necessarily make it like a bad thing. Um, but I still, I, I, I'm still a strong believer in, in in the transitory state. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if that's your ultimate goal, because I just. I think that human beings are a product of their environment, and so I think we need to mold humans that are capable of living in a society like that by gearing our current, our present society to make them that way. And I don't think that going directly to that stateless class of society, even if it was possible, um, 
is necessarily uh, going to get you those results. If your ultimate goal is for people not to, if your ultimate goal, ultimate reason for being a Marxist is for so people don't die, a, a violent revolution, at least in the state we have right now, would be fucking horrible for accomplishing that goal. You, like you said, you need to mold the people, mold people into people who are willing to take that next step and willing to rely on each other. Like there'd be currently way too much infighting, food supply would break down, people would die. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, revolutions are always messy business. Right, but it, it wouldn't. I'm just saying there would be a lot of infighting. It wouldn't be um, bourgeoisie versus proletariat. It'd be a whole lot of proletary infighting and a couple paramilitary groups going to hang Jeff Bezos upside down. Well, that's that's the thing. This is why you keep seeing like memes about how the tanky take is always the objectively correct take anytime anyone tries something in real life. And it's like, it does kind of, it does kind of show in the historical record because like pretty much the entirety of all like real existing socialisms you know, in big quotes, you know, there's a lot of debate over who counts, uh, but it's hard to deny that um, that the MLs have the best record um, in terms of building at least states that get the reputation for being socialist um, that that don't instantly fall apart. Oftentimes they do for a plethora of usually external pressures, but... Um, yeah, funny how that works. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Um, but yeah, it, it it is a it is a um an immensely uh material thinking and heavily like practical um methodology for establishing a socialist system. Um and ultimately like what you have to leave behind in order to get there is a lot of the um things that socialists like cling to very romantically about like democracy and about, um, you know, like, individual liberty. Um, and it's tough, because ultimately those are the things you're trying to establish for people. So you have to be... Um, you just got to be smart about it, I guess. That's how, I mean, we got our ostensibly democratic constitution in a completely authoritarian manner, where a bunch of guys went into a room and wrote a new constitution as the confederacy, the original confederacy, the article of confederation confederacy, was falling apart, and they just like wrote a new constitution that this is the law of the land now. So all I'm hearing... No, go on. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, all I'm hearing is that I should continue doing what I'm doing and cyberbullying uh, Charlie Kirk on Twitter for having a small face. And everything yeah. will turn out fine. You need to you need to reduce the size of his face by about fifteen percent, and mm-hmm. see if anyone even notices. Ooh, that'd be good. That'd be good. All right. Um, Is that about it for uh, what we what we all have to say about Marx <laughs> for now? Christ. Um, yeah, I got bread in the oven that I'm gonna have to take out soon. So you wanna play oh, us out? What a what a perfect what a perfect. Uh, bread boy you are actually do you want to uh, plug our social media real quick holy fuck i am the social media manager you're right um you can follow us on twitter you can give us new episode ideas on twitter you can critique this episode on twitter you can retweet us on twitter tell your friends about us on twitter at we read theory pod 
Um, I am up all hours of the night reading DMs and mentions, and I'd love to hear from y'all. So if you have any spicy takes or literature you want us to go over, just hit me up. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Love you guys.